The reading this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look." The word of the Lord. We are kicking off this new sermon series this Sunday, and it's called Foundations. And I'm calling it to that because this is a letter of Peter. Peter, whose given name was Simon, Simon, son of Jonah, but who was given a nickname, Peter, Rocky, by Jesus. And he got this nickname because Jesus was talking to his disciples in the Gospels, and he's saying, "What do people? who do people say that I am? You know, what's the word on the street about me? And then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, oh, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, ah, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And so from now on, you are Peter. Thou art Peter, it says in the King James. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so Peter's confession of who Jesus is, is the foundation upon which the church is built. And so as this foundational figure, this foundational apostle, Peter's first letter provides us with with theological foundations for what Christians believe and and ethical foundations about how Christians are supposed to live. And and not just in the churches to which are addressed in this letter, the, the churches in this region of what is now Turkey, but just as much for us today in South Minneapolis. And so we're going to really ask three questions of this passage this morning. And so first, uh, who, who is it that Peter says that we are? And second, uh, what is it that Peter says that we have? And lastly, why does Peter say that we have these things? So who are we, what we have, and why do we have it? And so first, this question of who does Peter say that we are? And the letter begins, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect exiles of the dispersion. And so usually if you're reading a passage in the New Testament, this kind of introductory formula is the very first thing that you're going to skip over to get to the good stuff, right? And so 
but this is really, really interesting because no other letter in the New Testament is addressed to a group of people in quite this way. To the elect exiles of the dispersion. Another way to translate this would be to the chosen resident aliens who have been scattered. And in using this language, Peter is not just referring to the social location of the people who are receiving this letter, but to the theological reality of who they are and who we are vis-a-vis the dominant culture. And so it may very well be that, that these young churches and young Christian communities were comprised of people who had been forced to relocate by the Roman government. That was a common practice. The Romans would conquer a territory and then colonize it with people from somewhere else. So that could be the case, that these Christian communities are made up of these type of people. And it may very well be that they're living far from their places of birth, that they feel like exiles, that they feel like they've been scattered. But this language that Peter is using, this language of exile, it's straight from the Old Testament. And it comes from this time, 587 B.C., which is, is one of these remarkable moments in the, in the history of God's people when, when the kingdom of Judah falls, Jerusalem falls to the Babylonians, and God's people are sent into exile. And they're scattered across the Babylonian, and then the Persian, and then the Greek, and now the Roman Empire. And so exile caused, it, it, it was the great crisis of faith for God's people because they were a chosen people with a promised land and God's presence in the temple. So what happens when all of that falls apart? It, it causes this great existential crisis of faith. And so this question that they had to wrestle with was, has God abandoned us because all these bad things have happened to us because of our sin? Has this special relationship, this special covenant bond between us and God has been broken forever? And the resounding answer that the prophets gave was no. That though Israel had been unfaithful, God would be faithful. And God would do a new thing and inaugurate a new covenant. And so to be an exile didn't mean that you were living outside of God's grace or God's purposes. But actually that you were a part of God's strange new plan to draw in all the peoples of the earth. And so to be an exile was to be sent on mission in a foreign and sometimes hostile culture. And so that's what Peter wants those reading this letter to understand. To be a Christian is to be a resident alien. And think about what that means. It it means that while you live in a particular place, you don't enjoy all the rights and privileges that come with citizenship. And there's all kinds of people like that who live in our very community today. I mean, even people with a green card, you know, you're essentially a citizen, but you can't vote. And if you commit some type of crime, you can be deported from this country. And so while you live there, you don't quite belong in the same way that other people do. And so what Peter is saying is it means that while you live in the dominant culture, you relate to that culture in such a way that is um, the... Duke theologian Stanley Hauerwas and William Willimon, they said that the Christians live in what is essentially a Christian colony, a living demonstration of a community that operates according to different foundational beliefs and practices than the dominant culture that surrounds it and, and doesn't necessarily support or understand the beliefs of that Christian community. And so when the early church looked around at, at the surrounding dominant culture, they did not expect that they were going to be you know, supported by that culture. Those who came to faith in Christ from Jewish backgrounds expected that their, their families and the, community of faith, communities of faith that nurtured them would 
reject them. And the Gentile lower classes who were so attracted by the gospel and brought into the church, women and slaves and the like, they expected to be seen as anti-social because they refused to participate in the civic religion of the empire where one was expected to honor the gods of the city and above all else, the emperor himself as this quasi-divine figure. And so Peter's message to these young churches and young Christians is that they are to live as resident aliens, people with another citizenship, another loyalty, another place of belonging. That they should expect that they will never totally fit in within the dominant culture. And actually they should expect that because they don't fit in, they are going to suffer. And this is is a strange idea for us, where we live in a society that is in many ways still haunted by Christianity. And so many of our, our values that we take for granted are, are rooted in, in, in Protestantism. Our notion of everyone being equal. Of the rights of the individual and individual conscience. The emphasis upon literacy and education. Our care and concern for the poor, weak, and vulnerable. Our belief that if we work hard, we can improve the world. All of these can be traced back to the influence of the Christian faith on the, rest, on the Western world. That long synthesis between church and state that was once called Christendom. And in Christendom, Christians didn't have to live as resident aliens. Citizenship in one's earthly and God's heavenly kingdom overlapped to such a degree that they were basically indistinguishable. Even in America, where we had no established church, up through the middle part of the 20th century, there was still this alliance between church and state. To such a degree that most folks assumed that the church worked to support the state and that the state would return the favor. Businesses would be closed on Sundays. Obscenity laws would guard public morals. But somewhere along the way, all that ended. And Christians have had to wake up to the fact that we are resident aliens once again. And that, that title, Resident Aliens, it, it, it's the title of this classic work of, of theology from 1989 that was published by Stanley Hauerwas and William Willimon. They were both at Duke Divinity School. Willimon went on to eventually become a bishop in the United Methodist Church. And, and, and they write about waking up to this idea that, that Christendom was over. And, and, and when did they date that to? And Willimon uh, tells this story of his childhood. And it's really the best beginning of a work of theology that I've ever read. It's this delightful story. And so he asked this question, okay, when did this change? There used to be this synthesis between church and state. So when did Christendom end? You know, it started in 313 when Constantine, the emperor Constantine, you know, took up the mantle of Christianity. It didn't become the official religion of empire, but it ceased to be persecuted and became tolerated and promoted by the state, right? He had this vision at the battle of Milvian Bridge, ad hoc vince, and it was a cross with this conquer. And that was kind of the beginning in 313 of Christendom. And and when did it end? And so Willimon thinks it might have ended somewhere in South Carolina in 1963. (laughs) Not to be too specific. But he says, when and how did we change? Though it may sound trivial, one of us, this is Will Willimon writing here, is tempted to to, uh, date the shift sometime on a Sunday evening in 1963. Then in Greenville, South Carolina, in defiance of the state's time-honored blue laws, the Fox Theater opened on Sunday. Seven of us, regular attenders of the Methodist Youth Fellowship at Buncombe Street Church, 
made a pact to enter the front door of the church, be seen, then quietly slip out the back door and join John Wayne at the Fox. That evening has come to represent a watershed in the history of Christendom, South Carolina style. On that night, Greenville, South Carolina, the last pocket of resistance to secularity in the Western world, served notice that it would no longer be a prop for the church. There would be no more free passes for the church, no more free rides. The Fox Theater went head-to-head with the church over who would provide the worldview for the young. And that night in 1963, the Fox Theater won the opening skirmish. You see, our parents had never worried about whether we would grow up Christian. The church was the only show in town. On Sundays, the town closed down. One could not even buy a gallon of gas. There was a traffic jam on Sunday mornings at 9.45 when all went to their respective Sunday schools. By overlooking much that was wrong in that world, it was a racially segregated world, remember, people saw a world that looked good and right. In taking a child to Sunday school, parents affirmed everything that was good, wholesome, reasonable, and American. Church, home, and state formed a national consortium that worked together to instill, quote, Christian values. People grew up Christian simply by being lucky enough to be born in places like Greenville, South Carolina, or Pleasant Grove, Texas. A few years ago, the two of us, Howard Wass and Willimon, awoke and realized that whether or not our parents were justified in believing this about the world and the Christian faith, nobody believed it today. At least almost nobody Whether we are with Pentecostals, Catholics, Lutherans, or Methodists, we meet few young parents, college students, or auto mechanics who believe that one becomes Christian today simply by breathing the air and drinking in the water in the generous, hospitable environment of Christendom America. We, by in no means, imply that before 1963, things were better for believers. Our point is that before the Fox Theater opened on Sunday, Christians could deceive themselves into thinking that we were in charge that we had made a difference, that we had created a Christian culture. We're not suggesting that all Christians from 313 to 1963 have been unfaithful. What we are saying is that in the twilight of that world, we have an opportunity to discover what has and always is the case, that the church, as those called out by God, embodies a social alternative that the world cannot on its own terms know. Being a community of resident aliens means that we can finally embrace who we are. That we can own that we are a community that operates according to different beliefs, different values, who has different loyalties than the dominant culture. And we can stop looking around for that culture to reinforce those beliefs and practices. We can stop saying the people out there are responsible for what happens in here and how we live. And we can return again to the sources of our faith, scripture, sacrament, worship, prayer, service. To disagree with the great LeBron James who told Kevin Love in an Instagram post, fit in, don't fit out. The church is actually called to do just that. That we're going to have to be okay with in some ways fitting out. That's who we are, resident aliens, elected exiles, people who don't quite fit in, not because we're trying to, but because that's just what loyalty to Jesus entails. And so the question then is, what does this look like in practice, being a resident alien? And I have a very trivial but real-world example that we're wrestling with right now as a family. My oldest son, Kyle, was recently invited to a birthday party at Snapology 
which is in Uptown, and it's apparently one of those cool Lego logo places or robotics-type places. And so this is, of course, a super exciting birthday party invitation. The only problem is that the birthday party is from 10 to noon on a Sunday morning. And my initial reaction when I heard this was, who schedules a birthday party on a Sunday morning? That's church time. My Christendom assumptions bubbling to the surface. And so the question for our family is this, right? I mean, come on, it's just one Sunday. That's, that's my gut reaction. It's just one Sunday. Let the kid have some fun and snapology, you know? He's a pastor's kid. He's going to suffer enough, you know? So, <laughs> so it's just one Sunday. But, but I'm saying, isn't this exactly the kind of scenario where I'm forced to see that I'm living as a resident alien? I mean, after all, in the early centuries of the Christian church, the, the, the emperor would demand sacrifice from Christians, and all they were asking for was a pinch of incense. Just one pinch. They would say, just give one little pinch in tribute to the emperor, and we won't put you, you know, on the grill or the rack or anything like that. Just one little pinch, and no one's putting us on a rack. But it's just saying, if worship is the most important thing we do as a family, and church is the center of our lives, because that's where we encounter God, how can we actually demonstrate that if the birthday party takes priority? So, we'll see what happens. <laughs> but that's who we are. We're resident aliens. So that's what Peter says. That's, that's, that's who you are. You are resident aliens. Uh, but the next thing that I want to ask is, what does Peter say that we have? And the answer to this question is so beautiful, it's so simple, but it is so profound. And it's one of the great themes that we're going to see continuing throughout this letter, is that we have hope. But more specifically, Peter says, we have a living hope. And a living hope is so much more than, you know, wish casting out into the universe. I hope this happens, I hope this happens, meaning it probably won't. No, this living hope is the kind of hope that will see us through the trials that Peter envisions for his own community, these, own, these churches. Trials that you will face as a resident alien in a foreign culture. And so Peter says that the Christian's living hope is rooted in one reality. He says, we have a living hope because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. That's why this hope is real and living and active. And I think this is where it helps us to focus on who it is that is writing this letter. It's Peter. And why would a living hope be so powerful to him rooted in the resurrection? Because on Good Friday, if there was anyone in this world who was more hopeless than anyone else, it was Peter. Peter, he had this great faith, but he had horrible failures. He had confessed Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. And then Jesus says, okay, you get it. You're the foundation. And then Jesus says, and I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. And Peter says, no. And so he who had just been given a new name, the foundation, Rocky, the foundation of the church, Jesus then says, get behind me, Satan. And the same Peter who had walked on water and then, and then he had sunk beneath the waves. And the same Peter who had said, Lord, I will never deny you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to death right by your side then had sworn to God that he did not even know the man. That's where Peter was on Good Friday. But because of the resurrection, because of Easter, Peter knew what hope beyond death meant. That his failures, his denials, his abandonment, his his betrayal of Jesus would not get the last word. And so that hope for Peter was so much more than a fresh start. So much more than a new beginning. The only way he could describe what he had been given was a new birth. 
that it was like entering into life again for a second time. And this kind of hope is, is the kind of hope that you can base your life upon, a, a hope in a, in a reality that is, is not yet here, but it's one by which you already live. It's, it's living today in the sure and certain knowledge of what will happen tomorrow. And, and we know what it's like to live with this kind of hope. So much more than wish casting into the universe. Living hope of the kind that Peter is talking about, it is, it's, it's like the child a week before Christmas. Seeing the gifts pile up under the tree and knowing on December 25th, I'm going to get to open those. It's that couple a few days before their wedding putting the finishing touches on, on the seating arrangement. Making sure everyone's in the, in the right place and at the right table and that awkward person's not with that other person or whatever. And so you're putting it all together. But when you're doing that, you know the next, when you see those people sitting at that table, you're going to be married. It's that person sitting down with the map and, and the guidebook before their, their, their flight, and that long, a month before their flight on that long-awaited, long-needed dream vacation and envisioning themselves on that hike or on that beach or eating at that restaurant. Or it's the prisoner a year before his release awaiting his first real taste of freedom in years and planning where his first meal is going to be when he gets out. That's living hope. That's the kind of hope that Peter is talking about. The kind that you can bet not just your life, but eternity on because it's a hope that is guarded by God. And it's kind of hope that that isn't just up in heaven, but it's out there in the future. That God has it and it's guarded and he's just moving forward, awaiting to meet it. And so that's who we are, we're resident aliens, but that's what we have, a living hope kept for us in the future by God. The kind of hope that means that, that whatever trials or temptations or, or whatever it is that we can live by, we can live through them. And the last thing that Peter says is, well, why do you have this identity? Why do you have this hope? And the answer is because of the triune God, because of the Trinity And verse 2, it's one of the most compact and beautiful expressions of Trinitarian theology that we have in the New Testament. And Peter says, I'm writing to you the elect exiles of the dispersion in Asia, Asia Minor, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And so in this one verse, Peter packs the entirety of Christian hope for living as resident aliens. And so this status is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In this world, foreknowledge in Greek, it's prognosis. It's more than just God simply knowing what's going to happen in the future. But, but it means that whatever happens, happens according to the purposes of God. Though Dennis is not here to give this sermon on this passage, I will quote what he has to say. So in his commentary, Dennis Edwards says, Such words serve as an encouragement on at least two accounts. The first is that God as Father is not uncaring about his people's situation. And the second reason for encouragement is that because of his foreknowledge, God is not caught off guard or taken by surprise at the suffering of his people. In fact, it happens within his overall plan of salvation. Just as his own son, Jesus Christ, suffered before being exalted, so will Peter's readers face persecution while yet enjoying the hope for future salvation and vindication. We are who we are and we have what we have because of the foreknowledge of the Father. 
in the sanctification of the Spirit. And, and this means that God's Spirit is at work setting us apart. And it's not so much a matter of status, but of service. To suffer because of our allegiance to Jesus Christ is not a sign that God has, has set us apart for some sort of indignity or disgrace, but for a special task. We're like gold, Peter says, being refined. And a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. And so part of being holy, a part of the work of the Spirit is being tested. In order to grow and mature and be proven. And lastly, God's purpose in choosing us according to his foreknowledge and and setting us apart in the work of the Spirit is for the purpose of what Peter says is obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. Because at the end of the day, what God wants for his elect exiles scattered across the earth is for obedience to Christ. And with this strange language and for the sprinkling with his blood, Peter is evoking this world of the Old Testament. And and then there's these three instances we see in the law of Moses where where blood is sprinkled on people. And so Peter is is bringing each of these together in this one expression at this one moment. And, And so if you were a leper and you got healed, you'd go show yourself to the priest. And the sign, part of the ritual of being declared clean was you would be sprinkled with the blood of a bird. And so this sprinkling was a sign of cleansing. And when priests were being consecrated, ordained, and set apart for service to God, they were sprinkled with blood. And so being sprinkled is not just about cleansing, but it's about being set apart for service to God. And lastly, there's this great scene in in Exodus 24. And Moses has just gone up Mount Sinai. He's gotten the Ten Commandments, the law. He comes back down, and the the people are like, he shares this with the people. And he goes, well, do you want to have this God be your God? And so you just got to agree. You got to live by these things. And the people say, yes, absolutely, we will do this. We want to be God's people and, and this God to be our God. And so Moses sacrifices an animal, and he sprinkles half of it on the altar, which represents God, and half on the people. And so this sprinkling is a sign of relationship and commitment to obedience. And so through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Christian is called to a new relationship with God in which the sins of the past are forgiven and he or she is pledged to obedience in the time to come. Through Christ, the Christian is cleansed, set apart, and pledged to obedience for all of her days. And so in thinking of, of all of this, right, Peter is, is leading us into so much. He's talking about the relationship of the church or Christian and culture. He's talking about living with hope, talking about the work of the triune God that, that directs all of our lives. There's this marvelous letter that came from the either uh, second or third century, and it's this apology. It's, it's called the Epistle to Diognetus. And it's this letter of someone, it's... Its origin is is debatable, but it's someone basically giving an apology for Christians. We have to keep in mind at this point in time, uh, Christians are living under varying degrees of persecution and toleration by the government. But one of the challenges that, that the Christian community has faced is they were seen as weird and strange and a threat to social order. And so this epistle is one, uh, this letter is one Christian's attempt to explain what is the relationship between church and culture. And it's this beautiful letter, and so I close with these words. He writes, Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own, or speak a strange dialect, or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based upon reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. 
Unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it is Greek or foreign. Yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, whatever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. They live in the flesh, but are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon the earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Obedience to the laws, they yet live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. Condemned because they are not understood, they are put to death, but raised to life again. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. They are defamed, but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to abuse. Deference, their response to insult. For the good they do, they receive the punishment of malefactors. But even then they rejoice, as though receiving the gift of life. Might we live in such a way that the same be said of us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray.